We're standing at the corner of Wall Street and Main Street. This is the Wall and Main podcast. I'm your host, Douglas Blake with Kingswood US. Today's guest was so incredible and the conversation was so deep that it actually is going to be split into two episodes. So without further ado, I'm pleased to present episode one of our interview with the reformed broker, Josh Brown. In the time it takes me to introduce today's guest, the episode will be over, but here goes. The author of Backstage Wall Street, the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, the creator of one of the most widely read blogs in finance, The Reformed Broker, podcaster, YouTuber, Forbes number one follow on financial Twitter, one of the minds behind Future Proof, the world's first wealth festival, Long Island native and frequent CNBC contributor, downtown Josh Brown. Josh, welcome to the program. The, the listeners can't see this, but I'm blushing. Thank you very much for that, <laughs> for that intro. I'm sure probably half of your life is, is spent being introduced by podcast hosts these days because it's, it's such a long rap sheet that you have. But, you know, let's start by going back in time just a bit in an effort to take a journey into the future of finance. The book Backstage Wall Street, a book that could have only been written by a guy named the Reform Broker, really marked a turning point in wealth management. What was the before picture and what is the after picture? Uh, Like a lot of people my generation, I started in the business of financial advice by actually uh, selling securities. So most people who are financial advisors today um, but had been around in the 90s or the early 2000s got their start as registered representatives, Series 7 registered reps. So that was my um, that was the early part of my career. And it wasn't really until the financial crisis that I, I basically decided that I wasn't really helping people in the way that I wanted to. And that is when I made a transition from being a broker selling products to an advisor selling advice. And that was a really big uh, change in fortune for my career. And I wrote a book about it shortly after the transition, just talking about a lot of the stuff I had seen on the brokerage side that I wanted to do differently as an advisor. So it was, I I think it was momentous. It came out in uh, 2012, about 10 years ago, and I wrote it in 2011. And in 2011, I had really only been an investment advisor, Series 65, for like a couple of years. So there's some stuff that uh, I said in the book that turned out to be very prophetic. Um, and I, I think I got a lot of the industry transition right. Um, and I had a lot of really good input from smarter people than me in, in formulating my, my ideas. But uh, I think the book has aged pretty well. One of the things I said in the book, and I forget the exact stat, um, so I'll make it up, but I think it's close. When they were debating fiduciary standard um, versus like the brokerage standard, which is just suitability, uh, one of the statistics that I thought was amazing was that something like 93% of high net worth investors had no idea there was a difference. They just assumed that their financial person 
um, was operating under a fiduciary standard. I think like the, the typical wealth management client or financial advisor client just made the assumption that, oh yeah, I give this person my money. They're registered. They have to do what's, what's, uh, what, what, what would amount to a fiduciary or they would, they would have to take a fiduciary role in the relationship, meaning only I pay them and no conflicts. And in fact, it was the opposite. Um, so I think like there was a lack of awareness on the part of our, the industry's, uh, client base. So that has since changed. Um, but that was remarkable to me that inside of the industry, we all understood some people are brokers selling products. Some people are advisors selling advice and, and cannot have conflicts like getting paid by the providers of products. But the public had no idea. And it didn't matter if you were wealthy and sophisticated. You just assumed the standard of care was one way, and it definitely wasn't. So that was a really interesting discrepancy uh, between practitioners in the business versus their clients. They just didn't know that's, that it was possible to hire an advisor who wasn't a fiduciary. So that has since changed, and uh, we can we can talk about how it's changed. But um, that, yeah, well, that was remarkable to me. One of the things that that has um, has changed on that side of the business, uh, certainly since that book, and probably in, um, in large part because of that book, is uh, Reg BI, the Regulation Best Interest, which is an additional layer of um, of regulation over the broker dealer side of wealth management, and I, I do think. And I'm not kidding that that backstage Wall Street played a hand in in that wow. reform. I think you're giving me probably more credit than I deserve, but I do agree with you that in addition to my book, there were there were probably in that at, at that time there were probably five or six people with voices as loud as mine or louder um, that were also very influential in educating the public on that difference. And maybe moving the the chains a little bit. Uh, Michael Kitsis comes to mind sure. as someone who had uh, been very strongly advocating there being a a. I, he wasn't saying that brokers should be held to a fiduciary standard of care. He was saying, let the brokers be brokers. Let's just put the dividing line. Uh, let's make the let's make it a bright neon yellow line so that everybody understands that if you want to keep being a broker, don't call yourself an advisor. Be what you are, and let's like separate the two professions from each other. That's not what ended up happening. What ended up <laughs> happening was we kind of got like a watered down version of fiduciary. They called the best interests. I think it was like a compromise between the brokerage industry lobbyists and the regulators. And you know, it all it all I guess now is a little bit bl- blurrier than it was, but it doesn't matter. Because if you look at where the AUM is going, if you look at where the growth in our industry is, it's on the fiduciary side. We still have hybrid broker advisors. We still have wirehouse wealth management firms that are obviously you know, doing both. That's all right. The, the big picture is that the public now gets it increasingly, and more and more practitioners in our industry are voluntarily converting their practices to become fiduciaries. So I think, it, I think it'll be okay. Right. And, and, and I, you know, we, we operate a hybrid at Kingswood and Benchmark, which yeah. are our two BDRIAs. And 
frankly, I think there is room for both and, and there's a place for both if applied the right way to wealth management. Here comes a deep cut. Uh, I've oh, been reading. Well, hang, hang on. Oh. One, one, one thing about that. Please. It, there, is, there is a place, but one of the other things that happened, wholly unrelated to anything I was talking about in my book and unforeseen by me and probably most people, is that trading commissions went to zero. And we should not discount that development in terms of its importance toward the industry's business model shift. Once you effectively make trading free, um, which happened, you know, I think I think Robinhood pushed the envelope in the way that Tesla pushed the EV envelope, and then the big firms, you know, uh, initially kicking and screaming, but then eventually one by one they all adopted commission-free trading. It's not really free because of payment for order flow, which is not worth getting into on this podcast, but um, <laughs> right. that, that definitely played a role in a lot of people who were being paid for trades saying, you know what, this, this ain't it anymore. Like this isn't, this, isn't a, a, this isn't really a great business anymore. So that I think was a big part of the industry shift. You know, I'm glad you brought up Robinhood and I'll kind of backtrack because I was going to move on to another subject, but after the pandemic, a new wave emerged with crypto and social capital, decentralization, the so-called Robin Hood revolution, you know, and, and this is a trade and, and, and people who get their uh, Series 65 or their Series 7, you know, are, are professional wealth managers, but it's also an industry that allows for uh, do-it-yourself, right? Uh, and and I'm not sure how we draw the line between the two. And, and you know, there's an old saying that in a bear market, stocks are returned to their rightful owners. So just as we all watched, as just about anybody was able to really make a splash uh, post-pandemic in that really strange kind of beer goggles period of investing, reversion is back to the mean old mean. And, and what did we learn from that experience? I think every generation has a mania that attracts them to the stock market. Every generation, when they first start out, they're there for the wrong reason, which is the promise of easy money or the recreational aspect. I don't even think um, what most of the new Robinhood accounts were doing could be considered investing. I think it was, it was trading at best and it was gambling at worst and probably a lot more gambling than, than even trading. Um, but that's okay. My generation, Gen X, we discovered the stock market in the late 90s, and we weren't, we weren't so great what we were doing. <laughs> we, were, we, were, uh, we had message boards, and we were bidding up dot-com companies with no business model to you know, $10, 20000000000 billion valuations. We did the same thing. And then it ended. And some of us decided we're going to use this learning experience to not make those mistakes again and to actually read some books and learn the right way to invest and then learn about behavioral finance so that the next mania wouldn't sweep us up. And that's how it should be. So this generation, it's been estimated that uh, I, think it's, I think it's like 25 million new brokerage accounts were opened in the 18 months starting from March of uh, 2020 through probably the end of 21. And a lot of money's been lost. And fortunately, most of the young people who were making their first trades, 
they lost money that they can replace because it wasn't a lot. And they're in the early stage of their career. They're going to make a lot more money and they're going to put a lot more money into the market. And the hope is that this has been a formative experience for them and that the new money they'll be investing starting now will be invested in a more careful, uh, rational way. And that's it's the circle of life. Five years from now, we'll have another mania. Um, maybe three years from now, I don't know. And new people will come to the market and do the same thing and they'll learn too. So I'm not anti the quote Robin Hood revolution. I think the silver lining is this is a generation that really learned the hard way, um, but maybe in a permanent way about some of the wrong things to do. That's a great point. And, and now kind of going back to what do these investors do now? They came into the market, maybe through this Trojan horse of Robin Hood, but they're here and now they're learning that, you know, this is a viable tool for, uh, for securing your future and, uh, and potentially well, they're not, retiring. they're not learning. They're not learning that this year. <laughs> <laughs> no, not this year. Well, this is, this, this is the learning process. And then what yeah, they yeah. do with this education, they'll apply hopefully in the future you know, I, I do want to come back to that point about the transition from fee-based, uh, from from transactional business to fee-based, and the fiduciary standard. Uh, software is eating the world, famously said by Mark Andreessen. I, I was going to throw in a deep cut from one of your old either uh, videos or blog posts that I read because I was floored when you quoted Kurt Vonnegut's Player Piano. Years oh ago. yeah. That was a big post. Just own the robots. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, right. Exactly. And and so, you know, it's eerily similar to what's going on today. And for our listeners, it's a 70-year-old book about a dystopian society in the not-too-distant future where machines have all but replaced the need for human labor. And really, the prestigious jobs are for managers of those machines and engineers who build them. Um, you know, to borrow a phrase from the compound, your widely wildly popular YouTube channel, what are your thoughts? So I think what was so eerie about reading Player Piano in the midst of the tech boom that we experienced in the 20 teens is how remarkably similar the trajectory in real life seemed to the plot of the book. And so in, 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 in the book, it's upstate New York, and it really reminds you of like uh, General Electric, let's say, like in the 50s, where you just had like all these uh, young, highly educated, uh, middle class men running these corporations and like every week coming up with a new way to automate some function of the corporation, the, these industrial conglomerates, and every time they succeeded in some industrial breakthrough in automation, it meant another thousand workers being shipped across the river where uh, basically they either were picking up garbage um, or, or driving driving trucks or, or doing some sort of work or they were just like put out to pasture and, you know, the way the system works is they were just like subsistence people. The government would make sure they had a house, they had food, they had alcohol, and they just kind of did nothing with their lives. And I mean, obviously, it's a very extreme example, but when you were watching companies like Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, or back then we called it Facebook, when you were uh, watching these companies go from being worth 
a hundred billion to two trillion dollars and you know just taking over horizontally just one industry after another industry automating 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 um it wasn't that big of a stretch to extrapolate like what is this country becoming the only people who can get rich are the people who are insiders and executives at technology companies and that mirrored what was going on in the stock market. You had like these whole swaths of the market, industrial, materials, energy, where the stock prices seemed to decline every day as those tech giants rose. So I, I felt like uh, I, I was capturing a little bit of the zeitgeist, not only in society, but also like a reflection of what was going on in the stock market. And of course, in the last year, a lot of that has reversed. And we've got this revenge of the old economy thing going on. And we've got this resurgence in the power of uh, the labor class going on. And it's really interesting to, to be living through that. That's right. You know, obviously, um, uh, it, it did kind of harken back to uh, General Electric Schenectady. And, and I believe he was working uh, at General Electric for a brief stint, which inspired him to write the book, which was his first novel. But you know, that, that kind of brings us to an interesting crossroads where we are now. And, and as you said, we the pendulum swung that way. Now it seems to be swinging back just a bit. But in finance, you know, is software eating wealth management? Are registered investment no, it's advisors... The op- it's, the op- it's the opposite. Uh, software is enabling a situation where a, a person can with relatively little experience and almost no money under management, that person can put themselves in business because so many of the tasks and operations that they typically would have needed an army of back office people for are now being carried out by software in the cloud. So the history of FinTech is never the replacement of um, relationships between advisor and client. The history has always been the technology drives down costs, drives out inefficiencies, and enables a talented uh, advisor to service more clients and scale their practice and simultaneously do a much better job for their clients than advisors were able to do in a previous generation. Um, I know all of the founders of all of the wealth tech companies and uh, – when you hear their stories, you say, like, where did you get the idea to do this? Or, you know, they talked to Eric Clark from Orion. His story is crazy. He, his dad was a financial advisor. I think they were in Omaha. And when he was in college, he started helping out his dad, like, manually updating spreadsheets of, um, you know, account values and performance reports and, like, helping his dad track how the clients were doing um, it within the practice. And it was just amazing to him that that was such a manual process. And I think he ended up going to the university of Nebraska and asking the computer school, give me a couple of, uh, give me a couple of kids who can, who can code. And there's just gotta be a better way to do what I'm doing. And that is the early iteration of Orion, which is now I would argue um, the best uh, we're, we're clients. So, you know, there's some bias here, but I would argue the best portfolio accounting software product for the wealth management industry. Now, did that displace 
financial advisors. No, it took the stupidity of those manual tasks out of their lives and gave them more time to focus on getting more clients or actually talking to their existing clients. And they're not sitting there updating spreadsheets with portfolio accounting data. So that is one example that I think serves as a microcosm for the entirety of the story of what tech and financial advice have meant for each other. It is not eating the industry. It is enabling the industry to get bigger, faster, better, more efficient, um, and I think uh, being a better uh, being a better partner to the to the client, giving the client a better view of what's actually happening in their portfolios. Right, and you know we had uh, Michael Kim on the on the program recently, the CEO of Asset Mark, and they're the largest uh, pri- uh, the largest TAMP provider uh, to uh, registered investment advisors and BD- BD's uh, turnkey asset management platforms. And he talked about giving time back to the advisors so that they could better service their clients. But if so much of the equation has been solved for with this technology, what skills does an advisor today need? What, what makes a great financial advisor today? The superpowers of the financial advisor of the modern era start with empathy. I think there's got to be... Uh, there's got to be a, there's just got to, like, you cannot, I don't think you can succeed in this business or it would be hard to succeed in this business if you are not the type of person who emotionally aligns with your client and um, just is, I think you've got to be driven by a sense of purpose. It's really hard to fake that over a long period of time. It's really hard to pretend you really care if you don't like the, 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 the essence of a great advisor, I think empathy is like the number one thing. It's more important than how many um, acronyms you have after your name on a business card. I think it transcends geography, where you live, where you work. I, I really think that is the defining quality. We've hired or trained 26 or 27 client-facing advisors, the majority of whom are certified financial planners. That's like our hiring criteria. We, we start with the person. I don't care where they went to college. I don't care where they live. I want to be remote, be remote. They want to work in our headquarters in Manhattan. That's great. We'll see it. We'll see on Monday. But like the main thing is, is this a person that we would take our fan base, our clients and put in front of, put in front of that, you know, those people with confidence that this person has the empathy and, and the ability to, on a very human level, connect with the client. We can train. We can train. If you've got that as the raw material, we can train you to pass a CFP uh, exam. We can train you to learn tax strategies and account and a- asset location. And we can train you to talk portfolio. And we can, you know, the, all of that stuff you can give to somebody. It's it's hard work, but you can give them that. You can't give them the right personality and and the right spirit um that's the thing that people have to come to you with and and possess it already so we focus very heavily on that and the results have been great that's a great place to stop for part one of our two-part interview with the reformed broker josh brown stay tuned and check advisorpedia spotify podcasts 
Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts for part two of this very exciting conversation.